You know, it's kind of neat. Bob is actually the first worship leader I ever had when I became a Christian and started going to church. He was the one who was doing the music way back then. And uh, I was just a kid. Uh, and he was old back then. No. <laughs> no, I, I remember being brought into the Lord's presence uh, through Bob. And, and what a great uh, thing for me again to have that happen again. And so it was a neat time for me just to reflect and remember, boy, for gosh, I don't know how many years it's been now. Um, the Lord has been at work, you know, in our hearts, drawing us continually to himself. And what a neat thing that was uh, this morning. Thank you, Bob, for leading us once again to the Lord. If you have your Bibles, open it to the book of Romans, chapter 2. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and they'll get one to you if you don't have one. There was a, a pastor who was coming out of a, a grocery store. And he, he belonged to a more traditional denomination, and so he had a little collar, and he looked pretty pastorally, if that's a word. And as he came out of the store, there was a group of, of boys that were kind of hovering around this little dog. And it caught his attention because there was a lot of commotion going on as they were kind of jeering one another, and he was concerned, well, what's going on? Are they teasing this dog? What, what's taking place? And so he, he went up to the group of boys, and he says... Hey, guys, what's, what's happening here? And the boys said, well, you know, we found this dog, and we've, we're trying to figure out who gets to keep it, and so we decided that whoever tells the best lie gets to keep the dog. And the pastor, you know, looked at them, and he thought, how could they tell? I've got the collar. Don't they see who I am? And, and so he started talking. He goes, you know, boys, that's terrible. That's awful. When I was your age, we never would do something that bad. We would never tell a lie just to get a small dog. And all the boys kind of hung their heads down and they kind of got together and whispered among each other and the group leader kind of spoke up and he says, okay, all right, sir, you win. The dog's yours. Mm. Uh -huh. uh -huh. And isn't that the case? So many times we're quick to, to give an error that we have not lived ourselves. We, we present this facade that isn't genuine. And what we're going to be looking at here is how we're to judge or better, not to judge. That is the question. And so we want to find out what is the answer. What is it that we are supposed to do? And in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, let's read it together. Paul writing, and he says, You therefore have no excuse. <clears throat> My voice cracked there. <clears throat> My voice is finally changing. Uh, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. 
Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? Now, he starts this chapter off with the word, you therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what is it therefore? Because it's referring to something else. And, and quickly look at verse 28 of chapter 1 with me, and we'll read that, because this is what he's talking about. This is the therefore. It says, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore, that's what we're talking about now. He just laid a foundation of man's depravity, of man's condition, of man's helplessness. And now he's saying, therefore, okay, we know how bad, and he's referring basically at this point to the Gentile world as he's now addressing those who are Rome. And he says, therefore, you, therefore, have no excuse. And the you, we know from verse 17, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, is referring to the religious, the Jews who had the law. We've seen the depravity of man. We know how bad it is. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, the word that he's using for judgment there is the word krino. I know, it doesn't mean anything. It's Greek to us. But it means to condemn. And some definitions of condemn that we need to recognize what Paul is talking about is to pronounce to be guilty, sentenced to punishment, or to declare incurable. And you see, what's taking place here is this depravity is evident. And so these people who have an awareness of this are pointing their fingers and saying, they're incurable. They're condemned. They can't be redeemed. Oh gosh, those people. And the attitude of judgment is one of condemnation. And that's why later on he says that for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. You're judging, but you're also condemning yourself when you condemn them. Now, the reason he is talking about them condemning is because of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. If you can, turn with me there real quick. 
Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to start reading. You can follow along when you get there. But Jesus said, do not judge. And this is the same word, condemn. Or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And Jesus is telling us, or Paul is basically enforcing what Jesus has told us, that you're in the same boat. You're in the same situation. You are not in a position to condemn. Because the things that you talk about others doing, well, they're the very things you do, just like that pastor who went up to the boys. And it's interesting how that plays out so many times that those things that we dislike in others, that we condemn, are actually the things that we ourselves are involved in. It just looks worse on somebody else. And our tendency, or at least my tendency, is when I hear about not judging and not condemning, I think of somebody who's judging me. Yeah. They shouldn't be judging me. Those people, they're so judgmental. They're wicked. They're bad. They deserve judgment. And all of a sudden, I find myself in the same situation. It's quick to put this on someone else and not be introspective, which is what Jesus is talking about. You need to deal with yourself. You don't have the right to condemn someone when you're in that same situation. And I guess the perfect example of someone judging when they're in that same situation is David. Remember when he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had found out that she was pregnant, so he sent Uriah, her husband, out to the front lines and had him killed so that he could cover up the fact that she was pregnant, and that way he could take her as a wife, and, and basically everything would be okay in his mind. And a year later on, Nathan the prophet comes up to David, and he says, Hey, you know, king, I have, I have something to tell you. There, there is a, a man who is wealthy, lives in the land, and he had some guests coming to stay with him, but instead of taking one of his own lambs and his own sheep, he went to his neighbors and took his. Now the sheep that he took, it was the only one. It was like a pet to him. He really cared for that animal. But he took his one sheep, slaughtered it, and used it to feed his guests. And David was outraged. He said, that man must die. Now, there's supposed to be judgment. The guy was basically stealing, but it wasn't supposed to be death wasn't the guy needed to die, but David was just outraged that someone would do such a thing. 
And Nathan said, David, you're that man. You see, Paul is saying to us, you're that man when you start to condemn others and say that they are incurable, that they can never make it. That guy, no, he can't make it. He's living in adultery. He's a murderer. Well, you just described David, who is a man after God's own heart. You see, God was not through with David. And God did not condemn him. But God wanted to change him. Now, there is a difference between condemning someone and judging someone as far as identifying them. In other words, there's condemnation, but there's also identification. That same passage where Jesus says not to judge, later on he says, be, be careful of the Pharisees, those who are wolves in sheep's clothing, and that you are to know them by their fruit. You will see what they really are by what they do. And so there is a judgment that takes place that identifies who we are and where we are at. Jesus is not talking about that because we can be quick to say, don't judge me. You know, if my daughter was going out with a guy and the guy came up to the door and, you know, he's high and you can see his eyes are, you know, glazed over and he's got Playboy magazine in his back pocket. There are beer cans rolling around in the back of his truck. And he comes up, yeah, I'm here to pick up your daughter. Because that's how I hear he would say it. <laughs> and if I were to get on his case and say, no, you can't go out with my daughter. And he would say, hey, man, don't judge me. I would tell him, I'm not condemning you but I am going to go get the gun and shoot you if you don't leave. <laughs> I'm, I'm just telling you the truth. You see, I'm not in the place to condemn him, but I can make a decision with the things that I see. And we all can do that. There's a difference between identifying a situation and condemning someone. And we need to be aware of that because only God can condemn. We don't have the position. We don't have the authority. We are in need of being saved ourselves. And so we cannot come down on them and say, you're going to hell. You're lost. You're, you're incurable. There's no hope for you. You know, someone said that about us probably at one time. And Paul is saying, you don't have the right to go there. That's not your place. And, and so it's not a matter of discerning the situation. It's a matter of condemnation. And it's important to understand the difference. I got a phone call from a friend today who, who went, or not today, this week, who had gone through something and she said, I, I had this situation happen where I, I felt like, you know, I'd done something wrong and if, if I didn't fix it, you know, God was going to get me and I just knew something was wrong. I, I was really afraid of the situation. 
And I was able to explain to her, you know, there's a difference between God convicting you and God condemning you. Conviction makes you want to change and do better. Condemnation says you're hopeless. And we are in no position to tell someone they are hopeless because there is a God who does the impossible. There is a God who does the miraculous. There is a God who can change anyone who opens their life to him. His arm is not short. His ear isn't deaf that he can't hear. No, the problem is with us. Our sin separates us from him. But he is able to save to the uttermost. And so Paul is telling this religious group, you think you're better than them. And you condemn them, but you're not in the position to condemn And although they were idolaters and worshiped the creature rather than the creator, you too are placing yourself in a position as God when you condemn them, and that isn't going to cut it. You too are condemned in the very same thing. Now, we are told that we are not to judge but that God will judge, and he will judge truthfully. He says back in Romans, verse 2, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. In other words, God has the right, he has the standard, he has the vantage point to be able to see things clearly, and we don't. We don't see things clearly. I love this quote says, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any other man I ever met. D.L. Moody. We have the biggest problem with ourselves because we do not see things clearly. We don't have all the information. John 7, 24, it says, Stop judging by mere appearance and make a right judgment. Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, talking about how they would be so legalistic that they didn't see the heart of God, that their judgment was basically self-serving, just like what Paul is talking about. It makes you feel good when you put someone else down. I feel better about myself. And that's why whenever you talk to people, you know, so-and-so did this. Well, let me find someone who agrees with me. What do you think of so-and-so? I think they're a good person. Okay, I don't want to talk to you. What do you think of so-and-so? Oh, they're rotten. Yeah, let's talk. I can't believe what they did. You know what they did to me? Oh, that's terrible. They're awful. They're awful. They're awful. What are we doing? We're elevating how we feel about ourselves. We're putting ourselves in a position of better than, but we're not judging righteously. We're not making sensible decisions. We're basing it on appearance, what we see. It also says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, when David was found by Jesse, but the Lord said, or found in Jesse's home, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. I love this verse. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God has all the information. We don't. We don't have enough information to make a judgment towards condemnation. 
years ago, I was working in the backyard, and I, I think I was cutting this hedge that was overgrowing the wall, and I had the hedge you know, edgers, whatever they call them, you know, those things. And I was up on a ladder, and it was hot, and it was miserable because I hate yard work. And, and I was doing this, and our neighbor came over. And he came over, and he said, Hi, Mr. Scotty. My dad wants to know if he can have a, a rake. Uh, he needs a rake. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll get the rake for you in just a minute. He said, okay. And so he walked away. And then he came back a couple minutes later. I was like, sorry, Mr. Scotty, but my dad says I need the, he needs the rake right now. And I'm like, who is this guy? You know, man, what is it? He needs the rake right now. I was like, okay. All right, so I get down from the ladder. I go, I get the rake, and I give him to the rake, give the rake to him, and, you know, he wanders off, and I'm thinking, man, this guy, you know, demands to borrow my rake. It's, you know, I'm thinking, what? It's just, man, the nerve of some people, you know, get back, grumbling on there, trimming the bushes, go back to clean up, put the edger inside the garage, and there inside the garage is, is my rake that looks exactly like the rake I gave this other guy. And then it dawned on me, my sons borrowed his rake. And he was asking for his rake back. And here I've got this attitude about this guy, the nerve of him, and all he wants is his own rake back. And I'm thinking, what is he thinking of me? Well, tell him I'll get it in a little bit. You know, it's like, it's my rake. What do you mean I'll get it? He's probably thinking the same thing of me. I didn't have all the information. And I felt like an idiot. Because here, that was his all along. And you see, we need to recognize that we see this much of a picture that is this big. That God is doing things that we probably are not aware of in people's lives, in people's hearts. And just like we would have condemned David at the right time in his life when God wasn't through, we need to be careful that we don't put a period when God is just putting a comma in someone's life and is still at work. It's important that we recognize the judgments that we make, that we don't condemn, that we don't abuse what we have as far as our relationship with God, that we don't think that gives us the opportunity now to condemn. Remember Jesus' disciples? When they wouldn't let him go into the city and they said, Lord, you want us to call fire down from heaven? Wipe out the city? Huh? Huh? Do you? Huh? Jesus says, you don't know what manner of spirit you are. You don't have that right. We need to make sure we don't take judgment to that place. He goes on in verse 4 and says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. 
how do we deal with someone who is in the wrong without coming to a place of judgment? What are we supposed to do when we see someone in a situation that they're clearly wrong? How, how do we present the heart of God to them? Well, the great thing about Christianity is Jesus. I know that sounds redundant, but that's really what it's about. You see, if you want to know how God feels about something, we have an example. We know how he feels about it. We know what to do when we look at Jesus and see what he did. How did Jesus deal with someone when he was confronted with their wrong? Well, we know in John chapter 8, there was a woman caught in adultery that was brought before Jesus, thrown at his feet, most likely naked, humiliated. They said, we found this woman caught in adultery, the very act. The law says that she should be stoned to death. What do you say? And it says they said that in order to test him. Okay, here's our example. Here's our model of how we're to behave. Here is God in the flesh confronted with a person who is in sin. And he stoops down and he starts writing on the ground. And they pressed him and they said, what should we do? Answer us. And it says that Jesus stood up looked out among them and said, you who was without sin, you cast the first stone. And then he went back and started writing on the ground. And it says from the eldest to the youngest, they dropped the stones and they walked away. When they all walked away, Jesus stood before the woman and she said, woman, where are your Where are they that condemn you? She says, there are none, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. There's a comma in this woman's life and how she has the opportunity to continue. And you see, Jesus himself was without sin. But he didn't condemn her. And you know why? Because Jesus did not act as God. He acted as man. Remember when Satan tempted him out in the wilderness and says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to be turned to bread. He'd been fasting for 40 days and he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, I'm not going to act as the Son of God to defeat you. I am going to act as a man should, controlled by the Spirit of God. And a man confronted with a woman in sin did not bring condemnation, but told her not to sin anymore and to go. That God's not condemning you. That's what God thinks. That's what Jesus thinks. It's not what I think. That's what Jesus did when confronted with that situation. 
you know, when they sell you a diamond, they bring out this black velvet cloth. And, and they have these bright lights shining down, and they put the diamond on the cloth. I know this because I did it once. <laughs> and the reason they put the black cloth there is because the diamond contrasted to the darkness is brilliant. Well, Paul has just left a foundation of darkness, depravity. And he says, you're in the same boat. And the whole point of this depravity of making us aware of our condition is so that we can see the brilliance of God's mercy and God's grace. That we can see how powerful he is. How glorious he is when it's put in contrast to us and who we really are. And it's important that we see this contrast because if we don't see ourselves in the reality of where we're at, we won't have righteous judgment. And worse yet, we won't know really our own condition. And Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, it says, Then he, Jesus, told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Second Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, the heart of God is patient. See, he's a tree. It's not doing anything. It's a waste of ground. I'm going to cut it down. And he says, no, wait. Let me, let me try and bring something out of it. Give me one more year. God is, is not slow with his promise to, to bring justice. He's just long-suffering. He's patient. He says, give me one more year, and then... I'll cut it down. If, if nothing comes from it, then we'll cut it down. And you see, if we don't recognize the condition of our own heart, if we don't see the problem, if our lives aren't producing anything good, if our, our lives are fruitless for the things of God, and we think, oh, he doesn't care. I mean, look at it. It's been 10 years now. It's been you know, whatever length of time, and I'm still alive, and I'm still okay, and I'm, I'm still going on. God doesn't really care. Don't, don't fool yourself. God may be saying, I'm going to give you another year, but there is a judgment to come. Jesus did not condemn the woman, but he told her, 
go and sin no more because there is a judgment. I can't give it, you can't give it, but God does give a judgment. And just because he is patient, just because he is long-suffering, doesn't mean he is not righteous. Does not mean that he will not judge. But maybe he's giving you just a little bit more time to recognize your condition, to see where you're really at so that you will say, yes, I need help. Remember, it's not the healthy that need a physician. It's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And unless we recognize, you know what, I'm a sinner. I don't care how long you've been going to church. I don't care if you were born in church. You're, you're in need of God's salvation. You're in need of help. You're not in a position to condemn. You're in the position where you need to be rescued. And God may be patiently waiting. He might be giving you another year before that judgment comes. But the judgment will come. And unless we pass that judgment on to Jesus, we will have to bear it ourselves. But do you realize that it's the kindness of God that leads us to change our lives. That woman caught in adultery, standing before Jesus, who says, I no longer am here to condemn you. Go and sin no more. I'm not here to judge you. What do you think that did to her? How do you think that changed her? We talked Friday night about meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And, and Jesus is the epitome of meekness. How when they went to take him by force in the garden. Simon pulled out a sword, hacked off his ear, the high priest's servant's ear. Most likely he was aiming for his head. That's all he could get. And there the guy is, ah, screaming, his ears on the ground. And what does Jesus do? He picks up the ear, dusts it off, you know, puts it back on. And while he's putting on the ear, he says, Simon, Simon. Don't you know that if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels. They would come here in a moment. You're good. You can go now. And he had a captive audience while he's putting this guy's ear on. I wish he would have cut off his head. That would have been cooler. Put it on the head. Simon, Simon, yeah. But you see, while they're listening to him, watching him heal this man of his ear, he says, I have the power to condemn you, but I came to heal you. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Not the threat of his judgment, but that he loves us in spite of our condition, with all our frailty, with all our weakness, with all our hang-ups, with all the problems that we have. He does not stop loving us. He is at work in us to heal us, to change us, and to produce something good in our lives. Do you believe that? Because that's what changes you. Not that, oh, if I don't get my act together, man, God's going to get me. God is saying, no, I'm on your side. I'm pulling for you. I was at a, a family camp years ago. My uh, family went, and we, we went in the tent, 
And I still don't know why you would go backwards in time and not go to a hotel or something where there's air conditioning. But, you know, we went to this place where you sleep on the ground and there's, you know, bugs and it's hot and everyone calls it fun. If that's your thing, that's okay. And we were there in this tent and I had to give a devotion at one of the gatherings that we had, the whole church had the family camp, and as I was talking, I don't even remember what I was talking about, and I'm sure no one else does either, but as I was talking, my son, my youngest son, who was at the time maybe about eight years old, I think somewhere around that age, and as I was talking, I remember talking about how much God loves us and how I love my children and would do anything for them, and that's how God loves us, and I, I could see on him Something was changing. Something was happening within him. He started wiping his eyes. He, he was holding back tears. He was keeping himself from crying, but he was moved. And it was visible on him. And after I, I had finished the study, I, I went and sat down with him. And I said, hey, son, how are you doing? What's going on? And he said, you know, when you were talking, about how you would die for me? He said, that touched me. And I said, you know, I was trying to show you how much God loves you, right? He goes, yeah, I know, I can see it. And it moved him. It changed him. It touched him because God cares that much for me. It produced in him a heart that was grateful. And that's what it'll do for us. On our flyer, It says, embolden one another to begin changing the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. I hope we will take the model that Jesus has given, that he didn't come to condemn us, but that we would have eternal life. That we can make judgments as far as indicating where someone is at, if someone is doing right or wrong, but we do not have the right to condemn anybody. That belongs to God alone. And I hope, like Jesus, we will be able to demonstrate how much God cares to let people know that God still loves you and also enough to let them know, but you need to make a change because there is a judgment that's coming. God, like that tree, might be giving you one more year, but he is going to judge. And he's patient. He's willing to wait. But don't test him. Don't show contempt for his mercy. Recognize it. Surrender yourself to his mercy. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you 
for your mercy and your kindness, Lord, towards me. And I pray, Father, that that would be my motivation in how I see others. Lord, you told us to love our enemies. And I don't know how else to do that but to first recognize that I was once your enemy and you were merciful towards me. That I should show the forgiveness and kindness and patience with them that you showed towards me. God, help me to have the right frame of mind to make the right call in how I communicate your love to other people. Not to blink at their sin and ignore it. Not to pretend that it doesn't exist. But to let them know you care that you are patient and you are waiting for them to make that decision so that the judgment will not fall. Help us to be clear, God, when we speak to people, to be able to communicate these truths, that we might represent you accurately, clearly, effectively. And like that woman, like David, like so many of us, we would allow you to continue to work and change us in spite of who we are, in spite of what we've done. Continue the work you've begun in us. And may we not have a high-minded attitude, God. May we have your heart of mercy when we speak to others. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for being patient, for not cutting us down when you could have. Thank you, God. Praise you. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.